0: Brothers and sisters in Christ, a Christian, by definition, is one who confesses a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, in the Athanasian Creed, which you find, I believe, on page 813 or 14, somewhere in there, in the back of your Psalter hymnals, we confess that if one does not hold to the Trinity, one is not. A Christian and at the same time we confess that the fate of such a one is that they shall perish everlastingly now if you look at the catechism that I just asked you to open you see there on page 868 the Apostles Creed The third part of the catechism deals with the creed and deals with the Ten Commandments. The second part of the catechism deals with the creed. And then you'll see how they're divided in Article 8. They're divided in God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And then if you flip over to Chapter Lord's Day 9, you flip the page, you'll see that this one deals with God the Father. Lord's Day 10 deals with God the Father. And then Lord's Day 11 deals with... God the Son, all the way through Lord's Day 19. I just want you to see that. All those pages in between that deal with God the Son, and then Lord's Day 20 on page 882 begins with God the Holy Spirit. Lots of material on God the Son. This evening, as we conclude the themes of Vacation Bible School We do so in the context of what the Catechism teaches us about Jesus in Lord's Day 11, but I wanted you to see that if we deal with Jesus in Lord's Day 11, that's only part of the whole story. So let's confess what we believe concerning Jesus from Lord's Day 11, and the words are on the screen. I'll ask the question, and if we together can give the answer. Why is the son of God God called Jesus meaning savior because he saves us from our sins salvation cannot be found in anyone else it is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only savior Jesus no Although they boast of being His, by their deeds they deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in truth have in Him all they need for their salvation. That's what we confess in the first question and answer regarding God the Son. But as you notice, there's a whole number of questions and answers about Jesus. Now, the reason the catechism makes such a big deal about who Jesus is was because the people at the time of the writing of this document, back in the 1500s, were really confused as to who Jesus really was, and they were confused as to his importance in salvation. The church of the day, the culture of that day, tended to add all sorts of things to religion, so much so that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit became obscured. And so the writers of the catechism, who were also part of the Protestant Reformation, wanted the church to understand who Jesus was. They wanted the church in the world to understand the importance of Jesus to salvation, and they wanted the church to know that belief in the Trinity is what makes someone a Christian. But this understanding of who Jesus is was not only important for the people of the 1500s. For as the writers of Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. Knowing who Jesus is is also important in our day and age. For example, one of the fastest growing religious groups is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons. And as the book Unveiling Grace tells us, Mormons do not believe that Jesus is God. In fact, they teach that Jesus was God's first spirit child, a brother of Lucifer. Meanwhile, as one website put it, Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was a perfect man, that he is a person distinct from God the Father. According to Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is a mighty one, although not almighty, as Jehovah God is. According to John 1.1 1, 1 in their Bible, the New World Translation, Christ is a God, but not the God. And they teach that Jesus was and is and always will be beneath Jehovah and that Christ and God are not co-equal. Other religions, such as Islam, for example, accept Jesus as a prophet but not as the Son of God. Now, according to the Athanasian Creed, which I mentioned a moment ago, that would put the Mormons and the Jehovah Witness and the Muslims outside of the Christian camp. And yet these groups all talk about Jesus. And so, because the Vacation Bible School dealt with this theme, and especially as we're preparing for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's good for us to be reminded of what we believe concerning the Son of God. Now, when the confession talks about the Son of God, the first thing that we hear and confess about him in Lord's Day 11 is that his name is Jesus. His title is Christ. His name is Jesus. An entire Lord's Day is devoted to the name Jesus, and there's good reason for that because, as the Bible tells us, it's the only name by which we can be saved. It's precisely because of this name Jesus that we exist as a church, that the ministries of the Back to God International and that the World Missions and Home Missions and World Renew and so far and so forth, uh, so on exist. It's precisely because of this name Jesus that we have a classes and that we have chaplains at the universities here locally. It's because of the name. Jesus, that we as believers have any hope at all, and that we even have a future beyond what we can see here in this world. And so it is that the church must always speak of that one name that leads to the Father, to paradise regained. The church cannot stand idly by while other false religions make their mark on the world scene. We cannot be silent or passive in a world that hears that Mormonism or that the Jehovah Witness faith is the way to go, the way to eternal life. We cannot be silent or passive in a world that hears that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet or that Buddhism or Shintoism or communism or capitalism are roads to salvation. We cannot stand idly by in a world that hears increasingly that salvation is found inside of a person or in a person's goodness. We cannot stand idly by in a world that declares that salvation is something that must be earned by being morally upright. Nor can we be quiet in the world that's awash with the message through music and video that meaning and salvation in life comes from fulfilling all your own dreams. Christians, young and old alike, cannot keep quiet, may not keep quiet, because our confession is, I believe in Jesus, and Jesus himself said, oh, this is so tough for so many people to take, but Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's the only way. The Christian must always speak of that one name that leads to God, to the Father. And biblically speaking, the stakes are incredibly high, We hear this passage so often, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We often look at the positive side of that text. But the message of the Bible is that one will perish everlastingly outside of Christ. The stakes are that high. It's no wonder that we have the commission to go and tell, and believers have been doing so right from the very beginning. We read about that in Acts 3 and 4, shortly following the events of Pentecost. Peter and John were going one day to the temple to pray. At the gate called Beautiful, they were confronted by a lame man who was begging for money in order to support himself. The individual had been unable to walk since birth and probably had no reason to think that his life would ever be any different. Being unable to hold a job and not really counted as worth very much in the society in which he lived, the man begged and counted on people's generosity to make it through each day. His meeting with Peter and John, however, changed his life forever because they spoke of the only name by which we can be saved. The apostle did not give the beggar any money. They probably didn't have anything to give him anyway. Instead, Peter said in verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man stood up and walked. He entered the temple praising God. The people were all amazed at what happened and they gathered in a large crowd because what had happened was indeed extraordinary. Here was the lame man who had always, it seemed, been begging at the door and now he was jumping around praising the Lord for a miracle. The apostle Peter seized the opportunity to address the folks with the gospel. And then Peter makes it very clear. That it was not they who did the healing. They were not some magicians. They were not some special doctors, but it was Jesus, Jesus, the very Jesus who the people had crucified, who had done the healing of the lame man. And Jesus could do this, Peter declared, because he wasn't dead anymore. He was very much alive. He had risen from the dead. And the healing of the lame man gave Peter the opportunity to call Israel to repentance. Not everyone in the audience accepted the message. The sermon annoyed the Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 4, verse 2, they had Peter and John arrested and told them to keep quiet In the morning after their arrest, the apostles were brought into the midst of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish religious council with all assembled. And then notice as they are in the presence of those religious leaders, they didn't plea bargain with them. They didn't say to the leaders, okay, you made your point. We're going to be silent about these things. If only you'll let us go. No, they really were not afraid, and they showed that to be the case by simply continuing with the messages on the previous day. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by him this man is standing before you healed. And then Peter adds in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by whom we must be saved. The message to the Jewish religious leaders was clear, and not at all lost on them. Men of the Sanhedrin, rulers of Israel, you may do to us as you wish, but we will never, ever stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. We will declare that name throughout the entire world, because without that name, people are going to be lost. People are going to perish everlastingly. We know him as the living, forgiving, redeeming Lord, the only Lord. So how can we possibly stop declaring his name? Besides, all the rules put into place by religious authorities will not save a person only believing in the name of Jesus' will. And so it was, try as they may. The Jewish leaders could not stop the proclamation of the name of Jesus, and the disciples continued to speak of the name to all those who crossed their path. Now, we may be inclined to ask, so what's in a name? Why the big deal about the name of Jesus? Well, the name of Jesus is a big deal, and that's precisely what Lord's Day 11 is all about. All of us have a name. But in our society, our names tell us nothing about our personalities, nothing really meaningful about our character. The name that we have may have put us into a family line of sorts, because it may be a name that's traced back generations. Other names are simply picked because that's the name parents happen to like. And today, at least in North America society, our names are are often merely labels. I am a human being called such and such and belong to a, a given family. Our names may now merely identify us, but don't really say a whole lot about us. But that's not always the way way it's been in history, and it may not be true for every society. Names used to say much more uh, about the individual bearing the name. One could tell from the name where a person lived, for example, or what they did for a living, or perhaps the name even said something about the person's character. The First Nations people of our land and other lands usually give the names that reflect something about the person or reflect something about his character trait. And so running bear, white dove, born with a tooth. And at that time, at one time in history, people only really had one name and were known by that name, much like we read in the Bible. For example, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, and John were known as the sons of Zebedee. And when it, came to take to, when it came time to take a last name or a family name, many folks merely picked a name that was very practical. They picked a name that would reflect something about them so people would be able to identify them. Some of the names put people into a context. So, for example, John, the son of Jack, became John Jackson. John who lived on a dyke, John Van Dyke. Galenzi, son of Glen. Or Chalain. That's the way names came about. And when we look at the names in the Bible, we see that many have meanings often reflecting something that happened either in the person's life or in the parent's life or in the individual's life or in the life of the community or reflected a character trait. Sometimes the Lord even used specific names to send a message to his people. So we read that Moses means drawn from the water. That's appropriate. Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the Nile River. Name of Samuel, his mother Hannah was childless until the time in her life when she, gave, when she went to the tabernacle and pleaded with the Lord for a child. God gave her a son in answer to her prayer, so she called him Samuel, which means asked of God. David means beloved. King David was beloved of the Lord. We started the service by hearing from Matthew one twenty one. The angel said to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because, and then what follows is the meaning of the name, he will save his people from their sins. And that's what happened. Matthew records that Mary gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. And remember, a name in the Bible often identified something about the person, his nature, his character, his task, and so on. There's often a close association between name and person. Actually, the name was the person. And so what you did to someone's name, you did to the person. That's precisely why God commanded, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. Misusing the name of the Lord is the same as misusing God. There was always something special about someone's name. That's also why when a name is slandered, we make such a big deal out of it and people try to clear their name. Jesus means Savior. And so when a Christian talks about Jesus, when Peter and John talked about Jesus, it is and it was more than merely a label placed on a specific person. Rather, it it is talk about the very Son of God, God Himself. And it was this very Son of God who suffered and who died for us. It was this very Son of God who rose again from the dead, and it is upon him that we are called to believe. The second person of the Trinity was given the name Jesus because it spoke so clearly about what he had come to do, namely, save us from our enslavement to sin. Save us from perishing everlastingly. That's the conclusion question and answer 29 comes to in answering the question why the Son of God is called Jesus. Jesus is the name of the one and only Savior. Salvation can simply not be found anywhere else, not in Eastern religions, not in material things, not in communism, not in capitalism, not in economic idealism, not in science or being good enough, not in alcohol or in drugs or in sex or in power, nowhere else but in Jesus. And then did you notice the catechism in an almost by-the-way manner adds, by the way, it's futile to look for salvation anywhere else. It's exactly what Peter said in Acts 4, verse 12. Don't bother dabbling around with other religions, cults, sects, or following some sort of guru or the advice offered by the stars. Don't bother with the advice of the world which says that happiness, security and peace so come on and so on come through winning the lottery jackpot or through sexual or drug experiences. These are all to use the words of Ecclesiastes meaningless and a striving after wind. These are dull, all all dead, dead-ended and ultimately a waste of time. Salvation is in Jesus alone. That's the truth proclaimed by the Bible and affirmed in the sacrament and then question 30 pushes the issue just a little bit further. What about those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere? Do they really believe in the only savior Jesus? Behind both question and answer 29 and 30 is the Roman Catholic the old Roman Catholic tradition of saint worship as particularly as it was prevalent at the time during the time of the Reformation back in the 1500s when the Catechism was written. Now, while the worship of saints, especially hallowed people, may have fallen off somewhat, uh, somewhat in parts of the Western world, the worship of all sorts of exotic gurus has not. Cults and sects abound even today. There are those who will tell us that salvation comes through finding one's past. That it comes through becoming one with the cosmic forces of the universe. That it comes through one's own strength and so on. Numerous stories espouse such philosophies of life. Others try to earn their salvation. So prevalent in people's minds and in our minds too. We want to help our chances of getting into heaven. And so we talk about the fact that, well, I sure hope I will spend eternity in heaven After all, you know, I've so tried so hard to live a good Christian life. Oh, you know how it is. I struggle with my Christian life. It's hard to obey the law perfectly, but then no one's perfect. I try my best, and I sure hope the Lord will look favorably upon me. I sure want to go to heaven, but I'm not sure that a sinner like me will ever get there. I've heard lots of people talk that way. If you start talking that way, if you start thinking that way, then the catechism says, I'm not sure that you believe in Jesus Christ as your only Savior. Or he may be your Savior, but you want to kind of give him a helping hand. Or we may confess Jesus as our only Savior, but then we place our trust in other things, our, our, our money, the bottle philosophy of some sort, something else, just to make sure. While we may confess Jesus as our only Savior with our mouth, we, we deny that confession with our deeds. So says the Catechism, either Jesus is what he says, and what his name says, he is our perfect Savior, or he is not. It's either or. You can't have both. Paul laid into the Galatian church for her denial of Jesus as the only Savior. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this, chapter 3, verse 1. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And then the answer comes out in the rest of the letter, in the whole Bible. Jesus is the only Savior, Jesus is the one. Believe in the only Savior, Jesus. 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 Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, says John 3. What's your confession? I believe in Jesus. There is simply no other name by which we can be saved. That is the Christian's confession. Amen.